Howdy, welcome to another episode of Cannon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the pleasure of speaking with Crawford Gribben. He is the author of a brand new book from Oxford University Press, Survival and Resistance in Evangelical America. The book kind of talks about the Christian Reconstruction movement that happened in the 80s from founders like Gary North, Rush Dooney, Bonson, that whole crowd. A lot of folks see that movement as dead. Crawford argues differently that it is now thriving in Moscow, Idaho, and the Pacific Northwest broadly. So go get that book. It's really, really fascinating. If you want just a historical analysis, there's no commentary offered. It's pure historical analysis. It was a really great book. I loved it a lot. And without further ado, meet Crawford Gribben. All right, now welcoming on special guest Crawford Gribben, author of a brand new book from Oxford University Press, Survival and Resistance in Evangelical America. Crawford, thank you so much for taking time today. Thank you, Jake. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate your interest. Of course. So in your preface, you say that this book has been developing over two decades. Can you first give us an introduction to the book that you wrote and then... Can you talk about just the initial spark of interest that would maintain that sort of motivation over two decades? Yeah, sure. Well, the, the book, as you mentioned, is called Survival and Resistance in Evangelical America, Christian Reconstruction in the Pacific Northwest. And it's a study of groups of individuals or communities or churches that are migrating into the Pacific Northwest states with a particular purpose to conserve or to recreate a particular way of life. Um, the, um, there's a concentration, as you know, uh, of uh, Christians with these kinds of priorities in Moscow, Idaho. But it's uh, while that may be the, um, we might almost say the epicenter of these kinds of movements or these kinds of communities, there's many, many more people and a much more diverse range of people involved in this as well, ranging from the quasi-paramilitary militia movements um, all the way through to people who are interested in arts and crafts and so forth. So lots of people who are preparing for some kind of crisis in the American short term, but uh, they may be doing that variously by manufacturing weapons or collecting weapons, or on the other hand, collecting seeds, or on the other hand, building very large libraries. So lots of different kinds of people, lots of different kinds of agendas, very decentralized, not quite a leaderless movement, uh, but a very significant movement of of people. and. Um, while this may not have been very much in the news, it has been discussed in magazines like The Economist and in newspapers like The Washington Post, um, both of which have covered what they regard as a migration, a conservative migration into this area. And um, I think this has become particularly obvious in the last year, uh, people fleeing, as they often put it, the state of California to um, freer uh, climates elsewhere. So. Uh, that, that that's really what what the book as a whole is all is is, is about. Um, as the subtitle suggests, it's particularly interested in one theme that runs through much of this activity, which is the theme that is articulated in publications and and so on of various genre. Um, the theme that these individuals want to rebuild a Christian America, and of course the question is how do you do that? Lots of groups have been wanting to do that for a long time. Traditionally the Christian right that the moral majority has wanted to build from the top down. 
So capture the White House and you capture America. Uh, but th these groups have a very different view of things they want to build from the ground up. So they talk a lot about family. They talk a lot about church fellowships, congregations. They talk a lot about local living, local culture, and so on. They don't really talk that much about politics as such, certainly not policy level, or at least they didn't, I think, until reasonably recently. Um, they would, for many, many years, have seen themselves as being outside politics, perhaps even against politics. Politics, however, has a habit of coming to capture us, even if we're not particularly interested in it. Right. And so I think there, there, might have been, there might have been a reframing of that within the last year or 18 months or two years, perhaps. And the, I suppose the, the, the title is often given to this kind of view of rebuilding a Christian America from the ground up is, is the title uh, Christian Reconstruction. As the title suggests, it really is about rebuilding. Um, and it's about rebuilding on an explicitly Christian basis, an explicitly biblical basis. So that's really what the book is all about, uh, Jake. And it's based upon archival work, a lot of reading, but also some interviews with people, some of the major players in this collection of movements, but also some kind of ordinary people who may have made various kinds of moves into this area for various kinds of reasons. You know, as the book illustrates, there's a huge range of people involved in this. They don't speak with one voice. They, they have slightly different agendas. Some of them are much more interested in, in uh, libertarianism as a political philosophy. Um, some of them are much more interested in social conservatism. And, you know, there's a whole whole range of positions that are adopted. So I, I got interested in this back in the mid-1990s when I was doing my PhD in Scotland. And I accident, literally accidentally stumbled into a pile of copies of an old magazine called Credenda Agenda, which was just being, I think, probably in its maybe fifth, sixth, seventh year at that point of, of production. And uh, this particular theological bookshop in Edinburgh had a large pile of these. They were there for the taking away. I took away a, a huge sample of them, <laughs> basically sat, sat reading them um, avidly you know, with, with real kind of curiosity, because by day I was writing a PhD about Puritan views of the end times. Which you know inevitably involves a certain amount of social theory, right? Uh, as, as Puritans imagined the gospel impacting globally, they were also imagining that kings would become nursing fathers of the church, as Isaiah puts it, and therefore they had to begin to ask themselves, well, what would what would a state look like if a state was a nursing father of the church? Uh, and you know, so, so they begin to elaborate this as part of their eschatology, and and they begin then to point back to. Parts of the Mosaic Code, and of course, you know, in the Westminster Confession, uh, there's there's a lot of discussion. Well, there's not a lot, but there's there's some discussion there about general equity of the moral law applying to to modern civil states. And uh, you know that that the Puritans I was reading, the 17th century Reformed theologians I was reading, tend to take quite different views of what that general equity might mean. And while at a theological level, they might be limiting their discussion to, let's say, you know, case laws applying various of the Ten Commandments to society. At a policy level, they were moving in a slightly different direction. So, for example, in Scotland, in Cromwellian England, in Scotland under the Covenanters in the 16, late 1630s and 40s, in England under the Cromwell regimes of the, 1950, of the 1650s, and of course in New England through much of this period as well, um, when Puritan politicians, let's say, came to make law, they made law not so much in the basis of what they thought the general equity of the Ten Commandments might be, but actually instead they turned back to the judicial section of the Mosaic Covenant to ask about which sins should be crimes 
And how should those biblically defined crimes be penalised? And many of them recognise that not only should the Bible define what a crime is, the Bible should define how that crime should be punished. And so both in Scotland and England, probably in New England as well, there's laws passed against adultery, for example, in the 1640s and 50s, which make adultery a capital crime. Well, why should, why should adultery be a capital crime? You know, there was lots of capital crimes in early modern England, uh, but, but this kind of legislation really narrowed what a capital crime should look like. But it did include adultery as a capital crime when it hadn't been previously. So why should adultery become a capital crime when other crimes should no longer be classified as capital crimes? And of course, the reason is because these political and social theorists were turning to the pages of the Mosaic Covenant for guidance as to how law should work. So, you know, I was, re- I was reading all that stuff by day. By night, I was reading issues of Credenda Agenda and seeing some, not all, but some of the same ideas uh, advanced with, you know, very curious applications at times. And I, I suppose I just got really quite intrigued by this experiment in reviving uh, what looked to me like quite stodgy Puritan theology. Uh, and then, you know, as I continued to read Credenda Agenda uh, through the later 1990s into the early 2000s, you know, it, it became obvious that this, the community that was producing Credenda Agenda, this magazine, the community based in Moscow, Idaho, was actually not the kind of fusty, stodgy Puritanism that I was reading by day, but was much more culturally engaged. You know, there was a, a, there was a, a classical Christian school established, then they established a liberal arts college more recently a musical conservatory, and so on. And um, so I suppose, you know, it was just a a really fascinating example of what could be done with social theory ideas uh, picked up from 17th, 18th century writers, but applied in late 20th, early 21st century America. And, uh, you know, the result of that obviously includes the podcast that, that we're talking about today. Now you you made we talked about this a little bit before you make a distinction uh, at the very beginning which I was really grateful for and I think made me enjoy your book uh, at a particular level that I might not have otherwise that the book is an attempt at historical analysis uh, exclusively rather than policy intervention or or a sort of sounding of the alarm can you yeah. talk a little bit about that particular stance and maybe what you think it offers uh, the book yeah. But thanks for raising that, Jake. I think a number of people who, first of all, a number of people have written about this and associated movements extremely well. So I I want to sort of pay attention to people like Michael McVicker, who wrote a a very good biography of R.J. Rushduni a couple of years ago. Julie Ingersoll has written a book about, uh, who's a religious studies professor, has written a book about Christian Reconstruction, which reflects upon her own involvement in the movement at an earlier stage in her life. And I think both of these books have insights that, that my book certainly doesn't have. And hopefully my book adds something to the discussion that both of those authors and others have, have started. However, a lot of people who've written about Christian reconstruction, stroke theonomy, stroke dominionism, which is a word that they tend to prefer, do sound an alarm. And you know there are books about American fascism that try to argue that there's this vast right-wing conspiracy that involves the entire Southern Baptist denomination, uh, along with members of the neo-Nazi far right. You know, so a, a lot of the stuff that's been written about this is you know, tendentious, perhaps even mendacious, and it certainly does not aid understanding. So I wanted to write something which would aid understanding. Uh, I tried to let the people I'm writing about speak for themselves. 
Um, my hope is that they recognise their own voices and they believe that I've reconstructed their arguments in ways that are faithful to what they have written or said. I've not tried to put words in anybody's mouth. I obviously do have a particular position. I'm not, no one writes neutrally. There's no such thing as a neutral observer. In some of my other work, I've been quite explicit about what my position is. And obviously that contours the way I approach this particular project. And so at the start of the book, I just signal that, you know, if people really want to find out what I think about some of these issues, there are places they can go for a much fuller exposition of that than I can give in the preface to a book that's really about a totally different subject. So, you know, I am um, interested in these ideas. I do have thoughts about them and I do have value judgments, I suppose, about, about them too. But that's not what the book is about. The book is not about me. It's about other people. My aim was to make sure that, um, insofar as I could, my own presuppositions did not determine the ways in which I reconstructed their views. And so, I, I, as I said, you know, I wanted someone, I don't know, like, like Doug Wilson, who's a, a character in the book, um, or Gary, Gary North, who's another character in the book. I would love it if they would pick up the book and say, yes, whether people agree with it or not, that is my view and this is how it has developed over time. Well, it was really refreshing and uh, you're doing yeoman's work over there. So I, I very much appreciated that aspect of the book. One thing I hoped that maybe even just in understanding sort of the, the logic of your thesis, you talk about what you call the latter-day theonomists, which I quite like that turn of phrase, in the Pacific Northwest. Could you maybe set the stage for us by talking about that sort of original Christian Reconstructionist movement? Yeah. Well, the, the movement of Christian Reconstruction, or rather, I should say, Jake, the movement that's become known as Christian Reconstruction, it seems to have developed in California in the 1960s. It was led, I think, or certainly um, helped along considerably by an Armenian uh, Presbyterian minister called R.J. Rushduni, not Armenian, but Armenian. Uh, the, the Armenian part is actually very important to his story because his family had come as refugees from the Armenian genocide back at the beginning of the 20th century. And when they set up home in the United States and R.J. Rushduni was born, uh, he was born into a family that remembered the horrors of the Armenian genocide. And R.J. Rushduni grew up uh, being determined that the fate that had overtaken his brothers and sisters in Armenia was a fate that should never overtake uh, his, his Christian family uh, in the United States. And so uh, as his ministry developed, he was initially a missionary, I suppose, or some kind of evangelist on a, an, a reservation of Native Americans on the Nevada-Idaho border and, or in that kind of general area. And he, I think, was, was very concerned by the ways in which government interference was, I suppose, sub, uh, making Native Americans subject to official interference in a way that limited their freedoms. Uh, and, and he saw this as corrupting character. He saw it as corrupting morals. And, you know, that, I think that, that was a formative experience for him because it made him see what interventionist government looked like and could do. And so as he was preaching away and evangelizing away, he was also becoming aware that his theology was in some ways at odds with the ways in which government worked to supposedly to help people. But his sense of what the gospel was going to do uh, was entirely at odds with his understanding of what government policy was actually doing. And so as he moved then down to California, he became, I think, 
much more interested in libertarian political philosophy, got involved in a number of think tanks that were um, emerging through that period to promote some of the tenets of libertarianism. But he, I think he quickly fell out of love with uh, the emerging libertarian right because he began to understand that the Bible that he was preaching Sunday by Sunday was also making particular policy demands. And that in some ways, those policy demands ran counter to some of the demands that the libertarian movement was making. So he began to develop his own ideas. He established his own think tank, the Chalcedon Institute, which continues to the present day. Chalcedon.edu is the website for that, if anyone's interested in following up some of his ideas. And he began to write, and he wrote prolifically, wrote and read at a really extraordinary rate. I think he may have been the earliest person to write a book on the philosophy of Cornelius Van Til, but certainly he was very influential in Van Til's own ministry. Cornelius Van Til was a Dutch philosopher who taught at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And one of the key arguments that Van Til makes is that there is a real disjunction between the way that Christians understand the world and the way that people who are not Christians understand the world. Now, uh, Van Til's letters, I think, demonstrate that in fact, Rushduni was, was for a long time quite a trusted colleague of Van Til who could be depended upon to see his books through the press. So in some ways, Rushduni and Van Til seem to have worked closely together to communicate some of Van Til's ideas. I suppose where Rushduni and Van Til differed is that Van Til was very interested in deconstructing the philosophies of secular modernity whereas Rushduni was much more interested in reconstructing what ought to replace them. So, you know, Van Til would write these very learned and complicated books about this philosophy or that philosophy, pointing out shortcomings, errors, uh, and deficiencies when measured up against biblical standards. Rushduni wanted to go beyond that to show how the insights that, that Van Til offered could be built upon in order to demonstrate what uh, a more biblically faithful position could be on the back of that critique, on the back of that criticism. And from, from that kind of position, and with that very strong emphasis upon the disjunction between, or the antithesis between the way that Christians and non-Christians see the world, Van Til then, I think, was released to begin to look again at what the Bible said about particular social issues or issues of jurisprudence, and, and began to write and write and write. And in the early 1970s, he produced the first of three volumes of the Institutes of uh, Biblical Law. The first volume was a massive, when I say massive, I mean a 1,000-page more or less exposition of the Ten Commandments. Um, it was lauded when it was published. I think, if I remember correctly, Christianity Today, the magazine, made it a book of the year in the year it was published. Oh, wow. Um, but it was also very controversial, partly because, for example, in the, his exposition of Thou Shalt Not Lie, he made some passing references that questioned the number of Jewish people whose lives had been lost in the Holocaust. And you know, if you read into Michael McVicker's biography of Rushduni, you'll see that, that there are links between Rushduni uh, and some uh, much more advanced Holocaust deniers, which are you know, obviously very troubling. So sure. uh, you know, the book was hailed when it came out. There was nothing quite like it. It and distillations of it seem to have made quite an impact on policy organizations, lobbying organizations. Julie Ingersoll, uh, the religious studies professor who's written a book on Christian Reconstruction, which came out, I think, four or five years ago with Oxford University Press. She writes with some recollections in that book of her own time as a kind of exponent of Christian Reconstruction, visiting lobbying organizations in Washington and seeing 
Christian Reconstruction books on their shelves. Oh, wow. I've got a much less interesting story, but still, I think quite an amusing story. In the late 1990s, I was collecting uh, these books from Christian Reconstructionist authors, wherever I could find them in Scotland. And you might be surprised actually how many turned up. Uh, but w- w- one of the ones I did collect uh, was a book by Gary North on the Ten Commandments, the Sinai strategy. And funnily enough, inside that book, there was a sticker which indicated it had previously been in the archive of either the Bank of Scotland or the Royal Bank of Scotland. So how, how Gary North's work had got into a major Scottish bank is a big <laughs> question. It's also a big question how that book got out of the bank's archive and into a secondhand bookshop. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, um, you know, these, these ideas began to circulate. So they circulated in hardcore fashion in publications by R.J. Rushduni, Gary North, who was his son-in-law, uh, Gary DeMar and others. But they also circulated in a kind of softer, cuddlier, fuzzier fashion in works by people like Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer's, you know, often thought to be a kind of evangelical Cold Warrior. He right. was taking a lot of his ideas from Rush Dooney. And, you know, Barry Hankins' biography of, of Schaeffer, I think, is raises some interesting questions about the extent to which Schaeffer was actually indebted, both in terms of argument and uh, and even polemic uh, to some of the materials he had read in Rushdie, so that's that's the the sort of the shape of the nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties movement. By the nineteen nineties, that movement has pretty much fallen apart. It's been deeply divided by animosities between leading individuals. I suppose you could you could use the expression the narcissism of small differences to explain some of the the, the difficulties that emerged in that movement. And so you know, most people who wrote about it in the nineteen nineties. Apart from wild conspiracy theorists, most of the people who wrote about it saw it as functionally dead. It was a disturbing movement. It had been a catalyst for things like Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, which is really written to, to dispute the claims of Christian Reconstruction as they were feeding through into the Christian right. But uh, apart from that kind of cultural presence, it had largely died. And I suppose that's when my book picks up the story um, and it looks at the ways in which the migration movement into the Pacific Northwest and especially into North Idaho was revivifying some of these ideas, but doing so not in a sort of scholastic, wonky kind of culture, but actually in a culture that's much more interested in community, in culture, uh, in the arts, and I think crucially also in, in, in a community that's very strongly centered upon congregational life. And you know, the, the story then picks up in the 1990s. And, and shows how in towns like Moscow, Idaho, uh, and in some other towns as well, uh, these ideas are really given a second lease of life. So I, I argue that the basic argument of the book is that Christian Reconstruction isn't dead. Um, it's been renewed. It's been simplified. A lot of the rough edges have been removed. A lot of the con- really controversial claims of the first generation have either been downplayed or denied. Okay. And that as um, Doug Wilson put it in an interview I did with him, what's being so successful now in North Idaho is not so much Christian Reconstruction 2.0, but Christian Reconstruction 0.5. Interesting. Interesting. Now, you've mentioned several other books that are sort of in this field. One question that I had was, you, you bring in Rod Dreher's Benedict Option to compare and contrast at different times in the book. I'm curious... Just as, uh, again, from your outside third-party position, it, what do you see the two movements in terms of what the Benedict Option 
talks about, and then also what you see in the Pacific Northwest. Are those the same? Are those identical movements, or do you see great differences in those? That's a really interesting question, Jake. It's an interesting question because I'm not quite sure how Rod Dreher would answer that. Because in an earlier version of the Benedict Option... I think I know. <laughs> or, yeah, he, he had certainly wanted to include a discussion of the Moscow community right. in it. Um, and then, you know, for, for well-known reasons, he decided against that. Uh, I think that, you know, I understand his reasons. They were important reasons. Um, there were some very sad and difficult things that he was responding to. Uh, and he wanted to make a wise decision. So that was his decision. Anyhow, I think actually the, week, the, the book is weaker. His book, Benedict Auction, is weaker for not including uh, the chapter he had proposed on the Moscow community because the, chapters that, the other chapters that are in that book tend to be about very different kinds of communities, which tend to be much smaller, and um, they don't tend to be especially Protestant. So, um, you know, he's, he, he's, he's drawn up the Benedict Option or described the Benedict Option in that book as something which is essentially Catholic or Orthodox. Protestants don't really get much of a look into it. Uh, and certainly the examples that he gives tend, I think, to be much weaker than the examples or the, the, the lessons that he could have drawn, for example, from the Moscow Idol community. Now, I say all that, I, I, I do footnote in the book a link to his explanation as to why he dropped an interest in the Moscow Idol community. I respect his reasons for doing so. They make sense to me. However, I think the book would have been stronger had he preserved that. He could simply have commented on what he might have felt to be the pastoral failures that he was worried about. But I think his book would have been stronger had that discussion been included within it. So I think Rod Dreher would see a basic similarity between these two movements. Uh, I'm not, yeah, it's a difficult question to you. I'm not exactly sure how I feel about it. I think I can see it both ways. I think you can see that there is a, a stepping away from the mainstream in places in the Pacific Northwest, in some communities, it's extremely pronounced that there are some communities that have moved, uh, or families or, or even in entire congregations who have moved into the Pacific Northwest from places like upstate New York, for example, who are you know, determined to be as secluded as they can be. And you know, they are emphatically leading, the, you know, they tend to be very Protestant, but they are emphatically leading a Benedict Option type existence. However, the largest and most influential of the groups that I'm interested in in this book are not interested in seclusion for its own sake. They're interested, I think, in stepping out of the cultural mainstream and stepping away from politics and all the kind of all the things that waste evangelicals' time elsewhere. They, they want to step away from that for the purpose of renewal, waiting and I, I'm not quite clear whether they are waiting. Um, for something to happen, or whether they are they are getting a little bit more interested in engaging with the crisis as that crisis develops. I think it's probably both. Bear in mind, these are sometimes very big, very substantial communities of several thousand, and in any community of several thousand, you're going to get lots and lots of different perspectives, right? Um, in terms of activity, or you know, or, or ideals, or, or whatever it may be. So, um, I, I think the leadership traditionally in some of these larger communities has certainly emphasised that believers need to step away from the mainstream, relocate, perhaps even geographically, um, but certainly be associated with like-minded believers, raise children, work for a renewal that might take generations to succeed, um, using the basic tools of Christian discipleship, preaching, prayer, church discipline, nurture of covenant children, and so on, and so on. Nothing particularly shocking or dramatic about the vehicles of this 
at the vehicles of this cultural recovery or spiritual revival, depending how you how you pitch it. So I, I think I think it's a really interesting question, Jake. Uh, as you can tell, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. Sure. I think part part of the reason is there are just so many perspectives within this movement. But I think that the most influential thought leaders, I hate that term, but thought leaders within this movement have traditionally or historically called for very deliberate relocation, um, cultural secession, you might say, with a view to waiting out some big crisis and then seeing eventually through some, I think, very slow organic process, um, the, the spiritual renewal that will come up through families, then through localities, then through towns, then through counties, eventually reaching state and, and national level. And that's how this will come. Uh, but but this, this cultural revival is not an end in itself. You know, th- th- this is a cultural revival that is a fruit of regeneration of individuals and of the, the renewal of families and even of localities and congregations that that salvation brings. So I think, I think that is how they would see it. I mean, I suppose fundamentally, the, 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 the fundamental difference between the evangelicals who are involved in this migration to North Idaho and the other non-evangelical groups that Rod Dreher describes is the fact that they're evangelical. And, you know, that I think inevitably um, theology, you know, the, the, what makes people Protestant inevitably distinguishes them from groups which may see society in broadly similar ways or may think in broadly similar ways about particular ethical issues, but actually um, understand the Christian life and congregational life in fundamentally different ways. Awesome. Awesome. Now, one chapter in particular, and this is, was especially just because of my job, that I found very fascinating was the media chapter. I wondered if you could just you you obviously started this entire project by f- picking up Credenda Agenda. Could you talk about maybe what you've seen from from those pages in Credenda to what what you've seen in the last year? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's um it's a remarkable story of growth, Jake. I mean, I think you know no matter your perspective on the ideas that this community is producing, I think anyone would have to recognize this is a really remarkable story of how a very small um, culturally marginal, in fact, deliberately culturally marginal group can move from sort of word, word processed newsletters in the early 1990s um, through to a really, you know, a really significant cultural presence in the mainstream, you know, 25 or 30 years later. So, you know, the, the, the earlier generations of reconstructionists had, I think, really developed a kind of cottage industry of of media artifacts. So they distributed lectures on cassette tapes. You're probably too young to know what they are. <laughs> um, um, or, you know, um, typewritten newsletters, maybe photocopied. Uh, in, in the late 80s, 1990s, um, the, the movement of certainly Doug Wilson's congregation towards media engagement was enabled by the development of desktop publishing software. That allowed the congregation, I think, to do two things, it allowed it allowed this group, which was growing in number in the early 1990s, as well as becoming increasingly self-consciously reformed, it allowed them to remain in the very strategic location where they had been planted by Jim Wilson a number of years earlier um, in the Moscow Pullman area, an area which Jim Wilson argued was was small enough to be achievable as a, if you like, a gospel target 
but also was located to major institutions like University of Idaho, Moscow, or Washington State University. It was located close enough to those institutions to be also strategic. So it allowed the congregation to develop naturally, organically, in a small location that was both strategic and achievable, while also beginning to reach out to a massive audience uh, who were curious about its ideas, sometimes persuadable, often, I suppose, persuadable by those ideas, nationally and internationally. And by the end of the 1990s, using some very artful desktop publishing software and other resources, Credenta Agenda was being distributed to over 20,000 households completely free. Uh, And those households were around the world. And I know that because, you know, I was one of the subscribers. Um, So, you know, the the magazine was was really going out. At the same time, um, people who are writing articles in the magazine were compiling some of these articles into books. Um, They set up Canon Press, a publisher, as you know. Uh, Canon Press was producing other material that was written um, for it not for the, the magazine initially, but uh, other kinds of, of, of manuscripts. And, you know, gradually it just grew and grew and grew. And at, at the same time, there's a number of key families, I think, in, in the community that had particular literary interests or, or ambitions. And, you know, they, they began to, to think about where they could publish their work outside of Canon Press. And so while Canon Press then, I think, became the intellectual clearinghouse for a lot of the work that this community was doing, some of the fruit of that clearing was being distributed or began to be distributed, certainly by the 2000s, with major publishers, the likes of Random House, Oxford University Press, uh, and, and other publishers too. And while I think this was initially a, a movement that was very much focused on the written word, I think over time it began, obviously it embraced the internet at a very early stage, but also it began to be interested in other kinds of cultural artifacts, music, film. Um, design, art, uh, and so on. Um, and of course, much of this was supported by the development of the new St. Andrews Liberal Arts College, by the Music Conservatory uh, more recently, um, and you know, like attracts like. And I think there's some evidence I've seen uh, online of people who, who write about the reasons why they have moved to Moscow. And certainly um, one individual who I was reading recently describing the reason why he moved to Moscow with his family to begin a publishing company as it happens, was precisely, was, was not for theological reasons per se, but rather for reasons of just wanting to be among a culturally enriching reformed community. And so, you know, as I said, like attracts like, uh, you know, once you get a significant core of people who are interested in developing media products, uh, once you've got a, a liberal arts college that that's really really focused in creativity and developing those kinds of gifts and interests, you then, you then really do have a, a virtuous circle where people come into the community who are attracted by its media products, but who also then go on to contribute to the development and increasing professionalism of those media products. Now, I think one of the things that really surprised me uh, when, I was, when I was following the development of the Mosquito community in terms of its media presence was the way in which it, it came to have a significance in the broader literature of migration into the Pacific Northwest, and particularly in terms of some of the survivalist fiction that's being published by some fairly big-name bloggers uh, who are interested in in survivalist themes. One of those is James Wesley Rawls, who runs survivalblog.com, which I think might be um, the world's biggest, or certainly one of the world's biggest survivalist websites. 
And he's written a number of uh, written a number of of novels published with Simon and Schuster imprints. Written a number of um, preparedness manuals, how to survive the end of the world. New York Times bestseller published by Penguin. Um, but but in some of his novels, uh, he he actually places characters in uh, Christchurch, which is the congregation in in Moscow. That that is at the heart of of this community. Wow. Uh, and you know when <laughs> when my friend Scott Spurlock and I first travelled to Moscow in 2015 to talk to some of the community leaders, this is one of the things we wanted to ask them about: were they aware of their significance in the broader media of migration to the Pacific Northwest? And you know they weren't. Um, I'm, I'm not sure very many of them were paying very much attention to survivalist uh, websites, and um, certainly not in the way that I was at that point. But there you are. So you know, at, at some point, <laughs> at some point, there's a tipping point, and all the hard work that people do over 25, 30 years generates enough cultural leverage that the ideas, the characters, the institutions, even the congregations take on a life of their own in the broader media. That's calling people into this area. Now, of course, in the very last couple of years, um, Doug Wilson in particular has taken some of his ideas onto Amazon Prime in his talk show there, Man Rampart. Um, Netflix has also run, I think, a couple of series at least of uh, cartoons of a character that was developed by N.D. Wilson, uh, who's another leading author in this group. And, you know, Doug Wilson has written a book with Christopher Hitchens and, you know, produced a, a film was made of their debate tour and so on. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, if you're going to quantify this movement, you might say, well, 2000 people in Moscow, Idaho, that's not exactly going to, you know, shake things up. But when you think about the way in which over 25, 30 years, they've been pushing ideas out there through homeschool curricula, through novels, through poetry, through films, through other kinds of art and through documentaries, through debates, uh, through podcasts, through websites, and so on, and so on, and so on. When you think about the way in which the success of Canon Press has encouraged other publishing companies into the same area to do similar kinds of things, and indeed to encourage other people elsewhere to develop some of these ideas. When you think then that books have turned into Amazon Prime talk shows, where these ideas are being very explicitly laid out, then I think it's possible to see that, uh, in fact, media is pulling people into this universe and keeping them there. But but I think crucially, uh, Jake, it also allows people who don't move to Moscow, Idaho, or to the Pacific Northwest, still to participate imaginatively in the life of these kinds of communities, and perhaps even uh, to set up um, something similar or to live out similar kinds of ideals um, back home. Awesome. Crawford, I don't want to take up any more of your time. You've been very kind uh, with your time tonight. So I greatly appreciate you for taking the night shift. Uh, where can folks, where, where would you like to send folks to get the book? Well, um, I don't know. Are we allowed to promote Amazon in your show, We Jake? are, we are, we are. Well, in that case, the easiest thing is just to go into Amazon. Um, uh, um, type in, just type in survival and resistance in evangelical America, uh, and it should come up. And, you know, it's um, hardback for, what price is it? 25 or $30, I forget which. And the Kindle edition, I think, is about, I don't know, $15 or something. I'm not sure. Awesome. Um, anyway, don't use Bitcoin. <laughs> now, do you have other, do you, you mentioned that you have, you have uh, other writings, et cetera. Where, where is best to find that stuff? Well, again, Amazon will have anything okay. that's in print. Awesome. Well, one other thing, one other thing I just might add, yeah, uh, Jake, if, if this is not too kind of self-promoting, but it is a podcast, so it's all about self-promotion. 
Uh, I've got another book. Got another book coming up in August. Okay. Um, if any if any listeners are interested in the history of Ireland, um, or indeed in the history of how the Christian religion can shape a culture in really profound ways, and then be lost to that culture, um, even if they're not interested in Ireland as a particular case study. Um, I've got a book coming out in August called The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland. So maybe that's something else that awesome. people might be interested in. I'd be interested in it. Um, Great. So I'd love to have you back on. If you'd be willing, we can talk about that yeah. book in the fall. Delighted. Awesome. Delighted. Awesome. Crawford, thank you again so much. Cheers. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. <laughs>